Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point, wow. The fakes, the gods are with the gods. Once you've stopped cutting the hair of your bit moji, can we actually record this? <laughs> Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. It's good to be back in the longest round there ever has been. I'm Emma Race. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Kevin Rudd. <laughs> uh, sorry, no, no, sorry. I'm Kate Sear. I'm Nicole Hayes. Alicia sometimes. Welcome back, Alicia. I'm sorry you were out last week with a you were out with a short notice. And a broken heart. Do you know what it was? Oh. It was a series of boring things where cars breaking down, oh. taking uh, someone to the milk bar. I don't know. That it sounds was really important. Yeah, I thought you had was. a strained haiku or something like I that. I did. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm back on track today. Well, Felicity's out today because her trip to Bali finally caught up with her. Says <laughs> <laughs> <Sarah> right. <laughs> She didn't bring us back a Bintang singlet, but she brought something back in her belly. Anyway, um, she'll be back on board uh, soon enough, I hope. Poor thing. Hey, um, this has been the longest round. Uh, It always is because, you know, we are recording this pre-Anzac Day game. So if something massive happens to either Collingwood or Essendon today, you're not going to hear it here first. Um, but the round has been going on. Last night was actually quite beautiful, though the Tigers just dominating. They're showing that they, they're they just getting faster. Their quick hands are hard to keep up with. Who wants to talk about their favourite reflections of this round thus far first? Hands up. Lucy, go. Well, I'm going to go because I think I'm trying to find a theme for each week and this week I think was the week of the full forward. On Friday night we saw Lance Buddy Franklin kick a goal from about 70 metres out. Tex turned around the next minute and said think that was good. <laughs> Hold my footy. <laughs> and kicked another one that yeah. was awesome. And then we saw Ben Brown kick four goals on s- what day was that? Sunday. That was Sunday. Yeah. So and is now leading the Coleman. And yeah. I have to say I'm loving watching Ben Brown play. Yeah. I have to say the um you you mentioned Ben Brown. He did one of my favorite kicks at the moment. I'm just loving the boundary goals. Yeah. Like these ridiculous angles and both times with the, the other one that really stood out was Lindsay Thomas, um who we'll probably talk mm. about a little bit later for other reasons, but um both of them were on the wrong side to kind of kick on those really They need uh, a maths degree. Yeah, and they've got the wrong they were kicking foot. It's like the opposite one would have made sense. Both of them nailed spectacular goals. Incredible distance, but it looked like seriously threading a needle. And I just, we've seen so many of them lately, but those two were highlights over it for me. Mm. Can we just talk about Buddy for one second mm, when sure. someone, a fan, gave him a chucks wipe to <laughs> wipe the ball? Yes, and it turns out you're not allowed to you're do not that. You're allowed to do it. They've, Steve Hocking actually came out and clarified that, yes, yep. the umpire was correct. You cannot wipe the 
football down with a Chuck's super wipe. Can you wipe yeah. it down I don't with know. A I don't know that we have clarification of whether it was a super wipe or just a standard standard, standard wipe. Chuck's wipe. But you are only allowed to use your items of clothing. Yeah, yep. which makes me think stops. of. Something that we haven't really talked about enough, uh, some of the little features that Mm. players are wearing on their shorts now. Mm. I know Hawthorne players have what looks like little pleats. And so do Carlton. And Carlton on their away shorts have like, it looks like like a little pocket pocket flap. Mm. Fake pocket. Fake pocket. A focket. Focket. (laughs) (laughs) Great minds think alike, Lucy Race. But I, I wonder whether they have been included <laughs> right, to like a, facilitate wiping down of hands I, or I getting grip power off. And I'm wondering whether the next generation will actually have a little chucks, chucks. kind of on the inside of a short. Well, it makes more sense mm. than the socks because actually they mentioned that socks are allowed for wiping down of yes. balls. I'm trying mm. to work out how you do that without kind of injuring yourself. What fan had a chucks, please? Who's, who goes to the go. footy with one? It's so strange. But can we, I mean, you wanted to talk about this at the end anyway. The reason my Buddy probably needed to wipe down the ball. Because well, he was so shiny. Mm. <laughs> I've been watching Buddy all year and he just seems to be getting shinier and shinier (laughs) Mm. and he was positively basted in oil on Friday night and it actually became a Twitter moment that everybody was talking about it so much. He looked like a shiny. He looked like a Thanksgiving turkey, I think. Um, Delicious. He, <laughs> yeah. I, I know you're a vegan. I, but am, a, for I am a vegan. Non-vegetarian vegans. I am a, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's, he looked like he a looked, So he looked like a tofurkey. He did. But I, I guess it has to be because the players, if they're oiled up, are very difficult to then tackle. Yeah. 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 Do you remember Tony Lockett used to be oiled up a little bit? Yeah. Mm. I wonder why they don't all do it to that extent if it really does work. Well, if you've heard on the grapevine that you're going to get tagged, mm-hmm. I guess that's when they get out the 44-gallon drum it's, of oil. It's all about getting the balance right between the oil and the grippo. Yes, the oil and the grippo. So the oil-grippo ratio is yeah. quite <laughs> important. And you know, the we saw this re- um, not that long ago, I believe, was the start of the the jumper so tight mm. that they mm. actually can't, when they're so, so oiled up, do you notice <laughs> that they, they pull on their jumper to be able to rest because they can't to put breathe. their hands on anything. They can't. Yeah. They slip off if they put their hands mm. on their knees. They can't get a grip on anything on them. You can see ribs. Yeah, it's yeah. extraordinary. They need a shoehorn to put them on. Do you remember that time when Stephanie Rice, um, uh, swimmer, couldn't put, uh, couldn't swim because she put her back out yes. trying to put her suit on? Yeah, mm. that's close to happening here. I, I wonder whether the the <laughs> clubs have, have like um. People actually dedicated to helping to help get into yeah. like, I was just thinking I'm imagining that. like an 1800s Jane Austen yeah, situation where they okay. have to be wound up. You're volunteering for that job? Uh, look, I'll give it a crack. Mm. I, I, I reckon I could work it out. And remember when Stewie Jews used to ride up a little bit? It would flip over sure at the bottom did. and flip up a little bit because gut. Yeah, muffin. little bit of muffin. You know, it does. You don't see the long sleeves anymore, too. Oh, and you can imagine what a disadvantage that would be now if you literally have to be yeah. so slicked up that you, you know, no mm, one can touch you. Though, sew them in. Jack yeah. Silvani still wears the long sleeves. Does he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mm. like that we're covering all the big issues here. This That's week. true. One of the other big issues of the round was the draw. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Giants and Saints drew, mm. and. Um, it's interesting because it sort of sparked a debate about whether we should keep the draw or get rid of the draw on social media. There was a, you know, very passionate people on either side. Um, Giggs, who um, is a long-time listener of this show and a friend of our pod, Hi, Giggs. He tweet- Hi, Giggs. He tweeted and said, 
on average, 99 out of every 100 AFL matches is not a draw. <laughs> that so sounds he said, right. Yeah. yeah. He said, I'd, I'd ask those who don't like the draw to enjoy those 99 games and, less, like, and let the rest of us who do like a draw enjoy the one that comes along every 100 games. There the, was, dr- the draw makes me think of this saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Yeah. Because for St Kilda, people were like, good on you. Mm. But for GWS, people are like, oh, yeah. Yeah. that's a loss. And it's especially bad for GWS, if I can say, because GWS, both the men's and women's teams have this uncanny knack of drawing. Yeah. So, again, Giggs noted that the men's team from GWS has drawn three of their last 17 matches. That's, that's an extraordinary high. stat when one out of every 100 mm. games or so is a draw. The women's team has drawn two of their last 12 so right. it's especially even... bad for the, the Giants. And I feel like last year there were a lot of draws. Like I feel that would have bumped the average up. If you took last year out, I reckon it would be even less than one in the 100 or whatever yeah. it was. It was a, It became a bit of a discussion because they were saying, well, what would have happened if that was in the Gold Coast-Brisbane game? Because that's yes. a Q clash. Yeah. And we need <laughs> – yeah. and for me that actually raised a whole other question about why we call it a Q clash mm. and not – the barbecue. <laughs> no. oh, that's a terrible joke. Yeah. Um, the thanks, thing Dad. about that yeah, wasn't thanks, a joke. Dad. That was a real question. <laughs> Do you think they have more barbecues in Queensland? Is I just think that you know you could have a whole themed round around you know barbecues. Charcoal. Sure. Go no. to the go to the car park beforehand. Look, let's park that and then <laughs> offer it to the AFL <laughs> later on. The draw made me think about how. We've want how the league has wanted equalisation, and they do everything in their power to try and make it an equal competition. You don't get more equal than a draw, <laughs> and people go like, oh, "What a yeah. flaccid result!" You know, yes. people, and also I will say this: if they're going to make a statue or some kind of like Renaissance-looking painting of the the heartbreak of football. Don't you think St Kilda players lying on the oh. ground after a draw yes. is just, it's an iconic moment mm. It's an iconic moment and I think it's really important that we have moved on from the draw in the grand final. I think that that yeah. is yes. so important that there needs to be a finality and we're not going, there, there, there can't be the same energy coming back the next week. So there's no question of that. But the draw, like you said, some people feel like the winners and some people feel like the losers. But I know, if, you know, when my team draws and, and it was a loss rather than a win, you're okay. You're, you walk away, you're okay. You've got a roof over your head. You've got your friends still. If you're at Docklands, you've got a roof over your head. Yeah, yeah. Always. That was annoying on Sunday. I mean, it was a dog. It was a dirty dog of a day for Hawthorne support. It was a ho- horrible match. Well done to North Melbourne, by the way. But the, the, the roof was closed. It was such a beautiful sunny day for Gorgeous. anyone who, can't, who wasn't here. It was a stunning day and then we walked inside. Yeah. Well, we talked about last week about um, the role that the broadcast partners have in shaping the game. And that's a very visible part of it because during the day, the broadcasters don't want to see those shadows on the ground. Mm. And and I think that's why the roof has been closed through daytime games. It was an atmosphere sucker when they mm. turned the sun off. Um, I want to talk about uh, this funny thing that happened. Uh, Jeremy Cameron, did you see this? He threw away... Um, Blake Aker's boot and gave away a 50 for throwing away the boot because it's a, a delay, a time delay, whatever. But I actually saw it. 
my husband and I argued about this. He saw it as a time delay. I saw it as the boot was in the way of where they were about to continue playing. And I actually was like, oh, did he even know whose boot it was? But you should have seen the, the faces of the, the players like, oh, come on, mate, that's stupid, whatever. But giving away 50 for throwing a boot, I have never seen that before. Have you seen it? I don't Not, know that I've seen anyone throw a boot. He just moved like it that. over. Yeah, it wasn't even that far. Right. If he threw it back to him, it would have been okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it would have been okay on the full. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was so strange and I was like, a 50 for that? Well, it also begs the question, if he had have thrown the boot back to him and not on the full, whether he would have got a 50, 50. for yeah. that as well. Yeah. Oh, I've actually never seen it either. I've never seen that happen. No. I, I, I'm with your husband. I think yeah. it's fair enough. I think it's a time waster. I think it delayed his ability to, to or for the kick to go forward. And so, you know. Boots, oh, boots I think back do, on feet. Do your laces up tighter. <laughs> yeah, well, that's shit, what I think. Shit cracker move or not? I don't know. Yeah, it was <sighs> tape your shoes on. It was weird. Yeah, ta- yeah. And turns out players have got feet. <laughs> yes, <I'm laughs> uh, the other thing that was causing a stir um, during the games that we've already seen, there was a seagull. There was, there was a seagull. They couldn't escape because there was a roof on the ground. I just <clears throat> wanted to. Um, Celebrate the seagull, and I've written a little poem. <laughs> uh, you may have seen during the week in Junkie, Tom Clift wrote an article, This seagull getting owned by a bull at the footy is a perfect metaphor for my life. <laughs> and it inspired me. <laughs> this is called Seagull Interrupts My Heart and I Just Can't Continue. <laughs> Docklands, late in the first quarter. Cameron Zahar put the ball in motion lobs over the head of Jared Waite to Cicely, who almost stomps the wing of the bird on the wing. BT says the seagull's right wing is partially dislocated and the bird has to walk home. Twitter erupts and the raucous corners of Reddit start making memes. I can't concentrate on the game. Dead birds do talk, especially on the internet. Seagulls are AFL as AFL like hot pies in a thermos. You can't knock them down without some serious crowd consequences. The game goes on, but I need to know, did the bird walk home? We hear later a resounding yes. My head is a whole stadium of size. I'm relieved until I look at the score. Seagull one, Hawthorne hearts broken today, all over the edges of the wing. Oh, <laughs> Seagull. I know. It was quite disturbing to watch. It was disturbing to watch. And I just kept, I don't know about you guys, but I just kept thinking about it. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. And I'm not even a vegetarian. (laughs) Do you hear about a seagull more when there's just one? Yeah. You know, when there's a whole flock, they kind of get lost. But when there's one, I always think it's just Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I cannot get past that without (laughs) mentioning that book, yes. (laughs) He was uh, a loner, but, um, you know. That was my takeaway from the whole game. Didn't make it in the injury reports for that match because I looked. (laughs) I looked. It was hard. I was at the game, so I didn't um, have the same connection, I suppose, to the seagull. But now I feel you've really brought it back. So thanks for that. All right, let's melee. There was a lot of things that caught our eye this week um, that. (laughs) <laughs> challenge us in football and society. Lucy, do you want to go first? Yeah, so there was an article in The Age by Carolyn Wilson and she was talking about um, two upcoming documentaries on Adam Goods. 
So one is going to be by Sydney filmmaker Ian Darling, and he's going to be using archival audio and visual documentation. But the second one is by Daniel Gordon, and it's going to be called The Australian Dream, and Goods has signed on with this project to tell his story, which I think is going to be really interesting. So... We all know that Adam Goods has been lost to to football broadly, um, but he's continued his relationship with the Sydney Swans and his Go Foundation, which he established with Michael O'Loughlin, works to empower the next generation of Indigenous leaders and is actually based at the Sydney Swans headquarters. One of the things that you notice any time, sadly, that um, there's an article about this um, period in, in football history and what happened to Adam Goods is... You see the comments and the overwhelming response is defensiveness and it continues to get in the way of a football community really understanding what happened and taking responsibility for what happened and making real meaningful amends so that something like this doesn't happen in the future. Imagine how it must feel to see a legend bullied out of the game. And to think if that can happen to a dual Brownlow medalist and a dual premiership player, what message does that send to young and not so young Indigenous players and fans around the game? So as these documentaries go to air, I think one of the things I'd really encourage people to do is to follow some advice of a writer and sociologist whose name is Kesiana Boom, she wrote a piece on BuzzFeed. She wrote an article called 100 Ways White People Can Make Life Less Frustrating for People of Colour. And I'm going to just pick out three three things that I think are really good takeaways. Number 17 was never try and tell a person of colour what is or isn't racist. Oh, yeah. Number 21, when we do have something to say about it, listen And number 99, to recognise that fighting racism isn't about you. It's not about your feelings. It's about liberating people of colour from a world that tries to crush us at every turn. Mm. It's funny that defensive thing because you see that. You see people jump right in and say, I wasn't booing this, I was booing that. And then the semantics of the actual um, events and other people's actions around it seem to take away from the core issue Mm. and what that experience has been like for Adam Goods and for Mm. other people of colour who've had to witness it and live through it It's and it's offensive. And even, you know, the the article talked a lot about it starting during the Hawthorne Sydney Swans Grand Final and a lot of people's response that I saw on social media was to say, oh, well, you know, you can't blame my club. And I think the problem with football is because we do always look at it through the lens of our club that we sometimes just get so defensive mm. rather than just saying this is a much bigger issue issue than um, who who was right and who was wrong, whatever. Yep. It's we need to actually park all of our parochial club mm. thoughts yep. and actually look at it. It's yeah. people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the, the lines that keeps coming up all the time is, you know, I don't boo you know, I don't boo um, Burgoyne or I haven't boo- booed um, Buddy. So the fact that you don't boo other Indigenous players somehow distinguishes this yeah. act with Adam Goods. So firstly, the problem with that is that Goods identified this <laughs> as being really traumatic for him. Mm. So the minute you continue after that, you you, you don't have, a, you know, you, your, your argument doesn't stand up. But also the reality is that a lot of um, Adam Goods, once he became Australian of the Year, he made a stand and he became um, active mm. in arguing against this systemic discrimination. And so 
you know, the, the, the thinking almost is, well, until he, you know, while he was behaving and keeping quiet and just acting like everybody else, it was, he was fine that this only happened once he became Australian of the Year. So what you're literally saying is he, he doesn't have a right to advocate on his behalf yeah. of his own people. Well, I, sorry. So I, sorry, I just, sorry, I just want to say, I think what we really lacked in that moment, and I saw it in that article that cited Hawthorne, and I also think from an AFL perspective as well, is we lacked really strong leadership. We had naive Absolutely. leadership that said, oh, it's always been part of the game. I don't think it's racist. And But as soon as he flags it, mm-hmm. that's when you need to step in. We saw that a piling on then happened and it was out of control. So I really hope that at at you know at very at the base level i hope we've learned from mm. that mm-hmm. and that we'll get strong leadership should we ever see it again yeah and we've spoken a lot of, about this on this show before but i uh, that just because a person is involved in sport doesn't mean that they park at the door yeah. when they enter the field their exactly. right to speak on political issues mm-hmm. but not just their right to speak on political issues the fact that they might be affected by political issues, including discrimination. It doesn't go away. It doesn't, you know, goods as experiences don't disappear. And and on that note, I just wanted to give a little shout out to a person we've spoken about a lot on this podcast, a person who I admire greatly, and that is Colin Kaepernick. Um, Amnesty International just this week awarded him their top award. Um, they awarded him the, the, sorry, they gave him an award as their ambassador of conscience for 2018. And they said that the award celebrates the spirit of acti- activism and exceptional courage as embodied by Colin Kaepernick. He is an athlete who is now widely recognised for his activism because of his refusal to ignore or accept racial discrimination. And the parallels with goods are um, very clear, I think, very in my noted. Mind. And the fact that there's going to be documentaries, there's articles written about it, there is this massive hunger amongst all of us and overwhelmingly the majority who love him, who celebrate his role in the game and are just glad that things like this are coming out. I think it was the minority who were dickheads. Mm. Absolutely. We want him back in the game, really. That's what we want in a perfect world. Uh, Not that... We really deserve him, to be honest. He's just got so much to teach he us does. and and this is a code that needs his leadership, Some learning, you know, yeah. and I just feel like people are so defensive about it mm. that they won't that they won't take it on. Um, another thing that we saw this week, so last week we talked about the fact that Beck Goddard had stepped away from her role at the Adelaide Crows and then days later we saw that Michelle Cowan had done the same at Fremantle, not signed on for mm. another year. I have a lot of feelings about this and uh, without being too ridiculous about it, the feeling that I felt the day after Michelle Cowan um, news came out was I felt a real slump in my heart and people have been texting me and saying, you know, is the AFLW competition in all sorts of trouble? And look, I don't think it is. I think that, you know, there's going to be teething issues. But the only thing that I can compare that feeling to was the way that I felt the morning that I woke up and it was revealed to me that Donald Trump had beaten Hillary Clinton in the election. And I know that that's going to sound ridiculous, but I think what I felt in that moment and what I felt when Michelle walked away is that in my lifetime, I now do not believe that I will ever see an AFL coach that is a female. AFLM? AFLM. Mm -hmm. I I think that's completely off the table. I don't think I'll ever see that. And 
I have lived in a place where I've, I guess I've had hope that I thought Mm. that we were going to, that women were going to advance in this and that we were seeing the stepping stones of that. I'm now not even sure that I'm going to see an AFLW coach that is female in the next two to five years. And um, one of the things that came back to me was, and Sam Lane did tweet this, you know Sam Lane's book Raw was released at the end of last year. Is that correct? At the end of last year? Yes. Yes. Started this year. Started this year. On page 45 of her book, Raw, she's speaking to um, an unnamed source who says, and this is what the book says, and please, I hope you don't mind if I read this to you. The landscape, particularly for senior and assistant women coaches in the AFLW, is being monitored, including by some already calling a red, red flag for other reasons. I'm seeing senior AFLW coaches just getting their mates in, says one senior AFL club employee. Women will never get there unless we're prepared to invest in them. There are two women as senior coaches in AFLW and if that's left unchecked, we will see history repeat. And that aside, clubs aren't actually being smart, going man heavy in AFLW. It's a different ball game coaching women, the way we interact, the way we think. Some male coaches simply try to pick up the men's game and put the template on the women's game. I'm convinced that that won't work. Says another with prominent AFLW involvement, I fear that AFLW is starting to become a men's world in terms of leadership. I fear we've created a women's competition for women to play in and for men to manage. Mm. So all of those things have come true in a matter of months since that since that book was um, printed. And despite those people having the red flags, this has been allowed to happen. Um, just to give a clear picture of what we're seeing at Clubland at the moment, that the reasons why I believe both Michelle and um, Beck have not continued their relationship as the coaches of those clubs is because they weren't offered or supported um, roles that meant that they could work in football and that they could see a development where that they could potentially end up being a senior coach um, in either the men's or an assistant coaching role, that there wasn't a development pathway for them there. And And can I just say, when you say work in football, you mean work full-time too? Yeah, have a full-time role. As a career, not just a a job. That's right. I mean, we know that Beck had to take her annual leave in season one I think season two she had to negotiate something else um, to be able to leave their jobs to be able to also do this and but what we see when we look at the men who are coaching and I'm not by any means saying that these men do not have great track records that excellent coaches have also earned their right to be coaching these teams they have Um, but Al McConnell at GWS Paul Groves at the Bulldogs, at um, Stanier at the D's, Seekman at um, Collingwood, Stasevich at the Lions, um, and now Daniel Harford at Carlton. They all have jobs that allow them to work in football 12 months of the year, whether or not those contracts are, they're not necessarily 12 months just for AFLW. And then if we look further afield and we say we're going to have two more clubs come into the competition next year, that's Geelong with Paul Hood. As, he, as their coach and North with Scott Gowans as their coach. So that's overwhelming. We've now got two free spots for Adelaide and Frio to um, pick up coaches. But um, the concern is that I think when you're looking at these, how people are getting these coaching roles, that there is no clear development pathway for female coaches in the AFL. And what happens is that when they get there, that based on 
a merit system, mm. they don't have the same experience because they haven't had the same life experience or opportunity, or opportunity mm. as their male counterparts. So I looked further afield. I went to some research that Liz Broderick, who was the former Sex Discrimination Commissioner um, federally, I went further afield to look at what she had done with the AFP and with the Defence Force. And she actually has built um, a really interesting toolkit, which then has been applied to construction and um, other industries. And um, I was looking at the ways that they talk about moving forward and, and the benefits of having women um, at in strong leadership roles and having pathways, which are all really difficult for women to get there. But some of the blockages are the fact that merit-based systems are set up by a patriarchal kind of over overarching patriarchal system of what they determine as merit, that at every turn, whether it's um, if you're looking at um, the application process even, um, what your hobbies are outside, if you if you don't say that you were the coach of your or you played footy in your, you know, the first 18 mm. or whatever, well, why not? Why didn't this person, even if you haven't assigned a gender or a name to your application, those are the kinds of things. So testing, merit, experience, other interests and the panel of selectors is quite often, um, you know, Biased. Mm. Biased and, mm. and maybe five people all who have a very similar look and a very similar background in their area of industry. So the things that I was thinking after looking at some of this information is the things that we can do. What can we do now? What should happen next? Because I think people have flagged it. There's lots of people talking about this. And I was think we need to do a review of female coaching experience that is anonymous and that is across the board, not just at AFLW level because obviously there's only been two, but I'm looking at um, junior football, uh, school football, yeah, any w. women any women who have been coaching and what they have seen as um, their struggles at getting to the next step and development. We need coaching pathways in junior clubs. So if you're listening to this and you're, you know, a couple of steps removed from AFL or AFLW but you run your own um, junior footy club or you're involved, maybe take a look and see are girls and women getting the opportunity to shadow the senior coach or the coaches at your club um, to see whether that's something that's of interest to them, to see whether there are development pathways that you can instigate at your club. And I think we also need to look at a dismantling, and this is a big one, and a reassessing of merit for coaching. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that I have heard anecdotally is that when men are asked about wanting to coach women's teams that they all pretty much can say yes women are different to men and I acknowledge that women need to be coached differently but the big question I think is the second and third question which is well how and why and inherently if you have female coaches they know a lot of that stuff mm. they bring that to the table that's their experience that they're female, that they mm. know how women interact with each other and that is not something that seems to be part of the merit system in um, getting coaches involved in the women's game. I think it's really interesting too going on from that, Em, um, you know, from an optics point of view it's really not a good look not to have women running the clubs, um, you know, quite high in, in on the administration side but also certainly in the coaching so that but pushing that aside, it's illogical to think that there aren't incredibly talented women out there being overlooked and that these clubs are missing opportunities. Um, one of the things that Grant Thomas has talked about is how more commonly now uh, coaches uh, or people hiring coaches are looking towards 
teachers and and educators as being one of their strong, um, you know, one of the, the key skills that they're looking for in coaches. And that's a, an industry dominated by women. So the fact that you're going to exclude such a large percentage of, you know, um, potential skill and, and talent um, – but I also think for the teams that haven't yet come to the AFLW, they can learn from this. They have the opportunity to to kind of benefit from the errors made by the other clubs in terms of um, supporting women at, from a development level inside coaching and inside the administration. So hopefully, you know, maybe we'll see that an active um, change in direction there. And just just to reiterate, I just want to be very clear and say that even the the. The teams that do have male coaches, I'm not saying that they're not no, qualified no, at not. all. I'm not being gendered about this no. and saying just because they're a man they shouldn't have the job. I'm just saying we need to look at why mm. women are choosing to leave this part of the game because we actually um, – there's so many benefits to having female mm. coaches. It's not just because they know how to speak to women. It's because, you know, having women in strong leadership roles really helps decrease violence against women. It helps to decrease um, – um, violence in the home. It helps to have visible, strong female leaders change communities. It also brings in unbelievable revenue yeah. to include both genders. And I think, Kate, you've probably got some stuff to say on, <laughs> I don't know, you look like you got ants in your pants. I do, I do. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm about to have a few weeks off because I'm going overseas, so I'm really going to let loose and then <laughs> sit back and let coffee. us pick it up. <laughs> yeah. I'll just leave you guys to pick up the pieces. I'll flee the country. Um, I wanted to come at it from a slightly different way, and that is that I wanted to to look at how people understand the problem that we're talking about here, the problem of women not getting coaching opportunities or not being able to stay in the system and leaving the system, as you explained, Em, but also how some people have been suggesting then that we fix this problem. And this requires me to say a little bit about problem solving and theories of problem solving. So I'm going to say something about post-structuralist theory on oh, a Wednesday my morning. Goodness. Why wouldn't you want a footy podcast? I think post-structuralist theory and footy go hand in hand. So, but bear with me because I, I hope that it will um, make sense. So there's a really large literature in academia which explores the process of policy making by governments. And the traditional view of how policies are made by governments goes a little bit like this. It's the idea is that governments identify a problem, then they are, they develop a policy or perhaps even a law in order to solve that problem. So, for example, governments might identify that there's a lack of women in senior management roles as a problem, and then they develop a policy or maybe even some laws to try and solve it, to try and get more women onto company boards, for example. And according to the traditional approach of policymaking, all you have to do is identify a problem and the solution becomes fairly obvious. It's clear and self-evident. But there's a whole body of literature that looks at these issues quite differently and that's what I want to talk about because that interests me. And this is what we call a post-structuralist approach to policymaking. And there's a very famous Australian professor by the name of Carol Backey who's done work in this space and Backey's work basically totally flips that conventional thinking on its head. And I think it's important because what she says is that when policymakers are looking at problems or trying to solve problems, they actually make very crucial assumptions in the course of designing those policies about both the nature of problems and the origins or the causes of problems. And what she says is that problems 
might seem obvious to us at first, but actually quite a bit of work has to be done in establishing what the problem is. And it's a choice, in other words, as to how we identify or actually how we construct the problem or the nature of the problem. So um, once a policymaker makes an assumption or a decision, a conscious decision about what they think the problem is or what they think causes a problem, particular solutions appear obvious but that's, that's all a process mm. of deliberate decision-making along the way of, of kind of social construction. And so Backy gives an example which is very pertinent to our discussion today and she says, and I'll, I'll quote here, that, for example, a policy that offers training programs to women as a way to increase their representation in positions of influence produces the problem as women's lack of training. Mm. So, of course, the point is that it might just as well be generated by something else like sexism or misogyny. Now, I mention all of this because I've seen a lot of chatter on social media this week about why there aren't more female coaches, why these women have left the game and how we can fix it. And as just one example, I had a guy on Twitter telling me that maybe those women just aren't the best ones for the jobs right now. And I saw quite a few people saying, well, these women obviously need more training. Um, and what I want to do is urge people to be cautious and reflective about those kinds of conclusions and jumping to the conclusion that the problem is some kind of deficit on women's part, that it, maybe it's a lack of training or a lack of skills in women. I think we should be careful about assuming the problem is simply that women have deficits and that if they had more qualifications, they'd get these roles. You know, I if you think about it ourselves, I can think about it in my own work experience and probably all of you and many of our listeners too as well will have experienced this. How many women do you know who have multiple degrees and certificates, they've done courses, they've been to seminars, they've done modules they on gender equality, they've read books, all of all of that designed to develop their careers and still they struggle and still they, mm. they reach a certain point and they don't get any further. That proves Becky's point that the problem isn't the deficit on women's part. There's something else going on and we need to actually investigate what that is. And so Beck Goddard's a perfect example because she's the most experienced and successful AFLW coach in Australia. Premiership. Premiership yep. coach. Um, equal perhaps with Craig Stasevich, but... If, she, if she, you know, either the two of them are on a par or she's the, the best coach in AFLW history. She doesn't lack expertise or skills in this space. Mish Cowan has been a stalwart and a pioneer of women's coaching in this country for a very long period of time. And we have an incredible depth of existing talent in this country, many of whom have been on this show, Debbie Lee, Shiloh Curtis, etc. And I have no doubt that all of those women would like more training and opportunities. That's true. But that's not the same thing as saying that the reason why these kinds of women don't get jobs or can't keep jobs is because they have a deficit. If the real barrier to women getting opportunities in either AFLM or AFLW were these kinds of deficits, then Daniel Harford would not have just been appointed as the Carlton AFLW coach. So um, Carol Backey, who's the theorist that I mentioned at the start, she tells us that how we think about problems guides how we devise solutions and that that process actually forecloses our thinking. It has a whole range of effects. It shapes how we view the world. It shapes how we view people. But it also shapes what becomes possible in the world. It has real effects on the world. Um, so shout out to any Michelle Foucault listeners <laughs> along at home. <laughs> she talks about lived discursive and subjectification effects of policymaking. And they're, they're all present, I think, in a situation like this. 
So I just want to say that I don't know why it is that these women are being lost to our game. I have my suspicions, but I want to urge everybody to think more critically about those issues. And we won't know for sure, as you said, Emma, unless we listen to affected women, unless we do a complete review of coaching, we make a concerted effort to actually open our mind to the possibilities and to explore why it is that the present culture is like it is. And if we can't and won't do that, if we jump to simplistic assumptions, the orthodoxy will persist and nothing is likely to change. I feel like I should stand up and clap. Yeah, clap. But it's structural, surely, as well. Man or woman, you have to be supported in your role in the AFLW for the year. It has to be a year-long thing, whether they Mm. are doing other roles within the club or whether they need – that is a given man, woman, anything structurally, they need to be supported. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other point that I'd tack on to yours, Kate, is why we think it's important to do this. Because I think the problem with rigid gender stereotypes that exclude particular genders from any type of different work choice or role in society actually is a limit for all of us. So that that limits all of us and that makes uh, that denies us the full breadth and beauty of what something can be. But also too, if I can just say, Lucy, I mean, um, as, as I said, Backy talks about discursive effects and subjectification effects. What she actually really means by that is that um, when we hear these kinds of things being said, it limits the discourse about women in, in society. And mm. and so every time somebody says, well, these women, maybe they're just not skilled enough. Mm. Maybe they need more training. Maybe they don't have, have the expertise. Maybe women aren't cut out for coaching and they need to learn more. All of that shapes. It has a ripple effect, mm-hmm. a very big ripple effect, and it influences how young people, young girls, young mm. women, young boys understand women's roles in society and the discourse, the discursive power of that. Yeah. those discussions is huge. And I think that um, what then happens is your conscious and unconscious bias then sets you on a path mm-hmm. where you go, well, those men would be more qualified than any Mm, woman because X, Y and Z, because we're all fashioned to thinking through the prism of, you know, experience based on what has always been the norm. And I think what's challenging is that when you say affirmative action and you force, you know, a gender balance somewhere, that there's always pushback because then a merit-based argument comes in. So all of it's problematic, you know. Yeah. But I see, you know, the Bulldogs, of course, they have Debbie Lee as their um, man- uh, their operations manager for the women's competition. And I know that she's really astute and she's an extraordinary thinker in um, terms of women's football and she will be nutting out what's going to be best for how her club can make sure, can go forward and can develop potential opportunities opportunities and but I think that we need to I think that affirmative action is something that we need to push and we probably need to educate on as well because I can't imagine like a lot of the players I'm sure would say I just want the best player for the job but they don't understand that that is problematic and potentially limiting for their own careers because so many of them want to be coaches so Mm -hmm. they're just thinking about the here and now and you know, we've been brought up to think that a male coach is going to be the best option because that's all we've seen. Mm. That's all we've seen as we've been role modelling and, and dreaming about this. I, I fear, um, I don't know whether you remember us talking on the podcast a little while ago about a Malcolm Gladwell podcast where he talks about um, The Lady Vanishes, oh, I think yeah. the episode's called, and he talks about how when one woman kind of breaks into a male-dominated sphere, how often people 
pat themselves on the back and go, there we go. See, we're not, you know, sexist. It's fine. So Mm. she can make it. And he talks about the example of Julia Gillard Mm -hmm. making it to be prime minister of this country. And he said often then what happens is that that's never repeated again because the, the barriers that exist within the system to actually, you know, try and or to, to stop people actually, other women getting to those um, roles aren't ever addressed. Yeah. But the other thing that I, it makes me think of is there's a really interesting example in music, in um, orchestras. So orchestras were finding that they were pretty much 100% um, men were making it onto orchestras. And back in the 70s and 80s, they um, many of them adopted this new method of auditioning where people uh, musicians would audition behind a screen. And in systems where that happens, they often find it gets close to a 50% right. gender balance in, in orchestras. I just, yeah. I, I, coaches behind screens. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> idea. But it just shows you, it shows you the, the power of, un- boys. but yeah. it shows you the power of unconscious bias. bias. But totally. it does have to start at the AFL. I think it has to start from the top. <sighs> Can I just say as well, I mean, this reminds me of the discussion um, that we had on our pod a couple of weeks ago with Paddy Hill, um, the coach of the Hawthorne VFLW team, who spoke about the fact that he struggled to break in to the system because he wasn't an alpha male. And so, mm. you know, you mentioned just now and that, you know, what we want is the best the best female, oh, sorry, we want the best coaches. And, and of course, embedded in that, that one word of best, are a whole set of assumptions about what makes for a great coach, what is greatness, what what kinds of skills are required. And Paddy made the point that, you know, he wasn't a great player himself, he's not an alpha male, he doesn't light up the room, he's he's you know, he doesn't have the kind of personality that was understood to be compatible with great coaching um, and that he had to overcome that barrier as well. And it reminds me of this really fantastic essay, which I we might post, I might tweet it, and which is worth having a look at. It's an old essay, but it speaks to all of these issues. And oldie it's but called, a goodie. It's an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> it's called Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? It's a famous mm. feminist essay mm. Mm. Um, about what greatness means and what we you know, what it is that we ask when we ask these questions. Why are there no great female coaches? Why, Whatever. Well, I mean, there are some great female coaches, of course, but that's worth having a read of because it's very I've got a tattooed on my thigh, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we will move off this, but I just thought of another cracking example, which is anytime someone, when Daisy Pierce is um, boundary writing, and I think she's an extraordinary expert comments. I think she does a great job boundary writing. I like her expert comments probably more. Mm. Um, and there's just so much discourse. And I see so often, I can't listen to someone who hasn't played the game at the highest level my husband has made a career of um, boundary riding and talking about football and I can guarantee you he has, firstly, never played football at the highest level and, secondly, he has never had that levelled at him by a punter, I think mm. once by Rodney Eade, but not by anyone else. And he, that is a daily occurrence. Mm. And, da- and you know what? Either. She actually mm. has played football at the highest <laughs> yeah. level that has been um, available to her. So it's frustrating. Let's talk about the bump. Holy smokes. I think we're all going to disagree about this because we saw um, um, Mr P had a very contentious and controversial decision to make this weekend. Now, I we were at the game. He had where- a few. Yeah, yeah, no, he did have a few. But do we want to what, – which one do we want to talk about? Oh, there's so many. I guess – 
Well, there's the Lindsay Thomas incident, oh, incident yes. and then there's the Ryan Burton, Ryan Burton. incident. I James was... Sicily, we could go on. Okay, so for the record, can we just say James Sicily deserved at least Ba-bow. a week. That is ridiculous what yeah. he did. Yeah. Ridiculous. Mm. And he knows it's ridiculous and he should be made to feel like a peanut and he needs to get over <laughs> his white line fever. Well, he pleaded guilty at least. Yeah. Mm. And he looked guilty. He did, didn't he? Flushed the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And that um, was enough for me. I did spend some time going down a Google wormhole looking up pictures of Anthony Michael Hall, who you'll remember yes, played yes. the nerd <laughs> in The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Looks a lot like James Sicily. Not now. He no. looks right, really yeah. old now. I've mm. never seen the two of them in the same room, so <gasps> yeah. I'm mm. not convinced Scandalous. that he's not Anthony Michael <laughs> mm. Hall. Um, I'm yet to be convinced. The Ryan Burton one was a tricky one because I think it re-educated us all on what the rule really is. Does anyone want to have a crack at talking about it? Nicole, you've got, have you got the actual so the, MRP? Yeah, the statement. Mr P. Um, Mr P. Mr P statement. So contact between Hawthorne's Ryan Burton and North Melbourne's Sean Higgins from the third quarter of Sunday's match was assessed. The ball is in possession of Higgins, who was seeking to head down ground as he moved away from the contest. Burton comes toward his opponent and chooses to bump him. Contact was made between Burton's shoulder and Higgins' chest, with contact also occurring with an accidental clash of heads. It was the view of the match review officer, that would be Mr P, that the Hawthorne player executed the bump with contact to the body and could not have reasonably foreseen a clash of heads between the players. Burton's conduct was not unreasonable in the circumstances and no further action was taken. And then, <laughs> yes. yes, well, uh, General Man- Manager of Football Operations Steve Hawkins yesterday reinforced the decision of the match review. Um, and I love that he said, we workshopped it long and hard yesterday, as you would imagine. I just love the idea of people workshopping, workshopping it. <laughs> paper. paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he, <laughs> We're really in sync today. Felicity <laughs> doesn't need to come back. There's a new sister in town. And there's something about fockets here as well. <laughs> oh, great. Um, yeah, but he says uh, on the Burton uh, clash that uh, if we suspend him for that, we're throwing the bump out of the game and I'm not sure we should be doing that. There is still a place in the laws of the game for the bump in our view. So in determining the level of impact, if any of a bump which causes a head clash, regard may be had to one or more of the following. Whether the degree of force applied by the player bumping was excessive, whether the player being bumped was actively involved in the passage of play, the distance the player applying the bump has run to make contact, whether the player being bumped is in a position to protect himself, whether the player bumping jumps or leaves the ground to bump. This is a hip-hop poem, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Any some sick beats, Katie. Yeah. Yeah. Any alternatives available to the player instead of applying the bump? (laughs) (laughs) Bumps. (laughs) 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 So it's interesting that... um, they, you know, all those things into consideration and they're saying that it's a diff- It's going to be a different game because mm. no one wants to see the players concussed. But no. in this case, it was accidental. I think the game wants the bump retained. It will be reviewed at the appropriate time. Yeah, it was interesting hearing um, Shane Crawford and James Hurd talk about it on their podcast. Um, Crawford was saying that Clarkson used to coach, possibly still does, Hawthorne players to go in lower, if they're going in hard for the contest, to go in lower than the opponent. Um to go in lower than the opponent and the challenge with that that which worked you know minimized head contact however they've since introduced the slide rule which has made the it slip harder. and slide yeah the slip and slide so yeah the challenges of bringing out you know the players um feet from underneath of them 
their concern with that is it effectively rewards the, the player who's second to the ball and and doesn't encourage the you know the spirit mm. of the game is about being working the hardest, getting first to the ball, protecting the person with the ball. And ensuring that, you know, that they always get sort of advantage in that situation. No, I was just saying it's probably safer just to tackle than to bump, right? Probably. And there was some discussion about the reason that Burton didn't do that is because it looks like Higgins is about to handball. Mm. So so then he would have lost it. And I think where it's really confusing is you'll remember back, it was a, a few seasons ago where Buddy bumped. Back when he was playing for Hawthorne. Ben Cousins or? Yeah, it may have been. I can't, I'm not like you. I don't remember all of the details. <laughs> but he, so he elected to bump. The player he bumped was injured and he was suspended. And I think from that point on, we've all, we've kind of been educated that if the player elects to bump and the other player is injured, there'll be a sanction. Yeah. Yeah. I think. My understanding of this situation is because the contact was basically his back to his chest so and the head con- contact came incidentally mostly because Higgins was blindsided and not expecting it, that that's why it didn't attract a sanction. But rightly so, I think we're having this discussion because we, we want to see concussions out of the game. Mm. Yeah. It's and a challenging one because this was a big concussion as well. Like he yeah. was yeah, he was terrible. so unwell and that's not what you want in the game. So therefore, what are the rules for if they're not to not have that happen? So I understand that people want to keep the bump. I like the bump. Mm. But I think I don't, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the cost. answer. I would have cost. thought that he would have at least got a week or two. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the, um, Sean Higgins won't be playing this week. No, no. no. It was it was a terrible incident. I, I'm quite confused by the language. If you can just yeah. bring it up again for us, Nick, about reasonable foreseeability. That to me is quite yeah. perplexing. The idea that um, if we go back to the statement he could not have reasonably foreseen a clash of heads between the players. Yeah, therefore his contact with Higgins was not unreasonable in the circumstances. I I find that interpretation very bizarre because if you bump a player and you're both at head high level and you're coming at Mm. each other at speed, it's reasonable it's reasonable to foresee the possibility that you will make contact with their head and, and hopefully you think I, you know, maybe you think, well, I, I think and hope that I won't because I'm skilled enough in the bump and I've trained enough in the bump to make contact where I want it to happen and to, for it not to be excessive force. But I think it's foreseeable that you you will make some contact or that you could hit, you could clash heads. Exactly what happens. So mm. how it's kind of seen as purely yeah. accidental. It makes it's this assumption that if you're bumping with your shoulder, a head is very far away from yes, a shoulder, yeah. which it's, it's like not. Like you're a giraffe. Yeah. Like you're a giraffe. And, <laughs> but the other thing that we know about concussions is it doesn't just have to be a head no, knock no, no. to cause concussion. It's it the, the it's collision, the collision movement, movement. The impact, yeah. yeah. Head, shoulders, shoulders, knees and toes. toes. But that raises the, yeah. the other question of, you know, the other thing we saw in that game was – um, David Mirror oh. bumped into the boundary. Yeah. Now, yeah. Thrown into the boundary. Thrown into yeah. boundary. And, and I was sitting about two bays away from that, right on the boundary, and felt the fence move. Yeah. And that was a really shocking he didn't thing move to for experience. Ages after no. that, too. That t- see, that, that, that's interesting to me. Yeah, he no, got he didn't. He, didn't. he was fined $1,500. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. This is where we 
Yeah, sorry. This is where we expose the flaws. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that <laughs> Not was the really interesting time. that Crawford also said was how, uh, and Heard was saying it too, is that the players feel so confident that they're being protected that they're not learning how to tackle properly and um, they're not learning how to avoid that head impact and they're going in blindly a lot of the time. And can the commentators please stop calling blind, um, you know, blind contests contest where they're running backwards brave? If we've got to stop saying, encouraging players to run blindly into a, mm, a they contest, I, I they always, talk about it all the time like it's really impressive and it's not. It's dangerous. I always thought it was sarcastic the way people, when I wear a dress that's too low cut and my it's boobs brave. are hanging out, they say, that's brave. That's mm. what I thought they meant. No, mm. it doesn't. No, they, they're mm. talking about it like it's good. I saw a great dacking at that game, oh, by the way, Alicia. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I thought that's of you. Right. Mm. Yeah, yes. I thought of you. Katie, we've got a great interview today. We do. So our guest this week is Dr. Deb Waterhouse-Watson. Deb is an expert in media and cultural studies and a few years ago Deb did her PhD looking at media coverage of sexual assault trials against footballers and she later turned that PhD into a book and it's work that she's continued on with um, in recent times. As some of our listeners might know, Deb is also the brains behind the Women in Sport Twitter account, which we love following along and that account celebrates everything about women and sporting culture. Deb's also really upfront about how her academic work, which is um, challenging in its content, as is this interview, I should say, how that's impacted upon her love of footy. So Deb and I sat down to talk about sport, sports media, gender, language, the Me Too movement, and what it's like to fall out of love and then back in love with footy. So, Deb, your research looks at the relationship between sport, media, popular culture, gender, sexism, football, all of those things. And your PhD, which was turned into a book, looked at how the media covers sexual assault trials and sexual assault allegations against footballers. Why were you interested in researching these issues? And can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Well, I was a really big sports fan. Um, and I was also really interested in language, and so I was coming out of honors an honors project where I was looking at uh, Dolly magazine, you know, teenage magazine for girls. And I decided to do a PhD, and I had I had two ideas in mind. And what really what really st- struck this one for me was from an undergrad class um, with the woman who became my supervisor. She was doing a project on sport and sexual violence, and it was one of those you know, show lessons at the start of semester where she was just um, using her research as an illustration of uh, of some the power of language, and she put up these articles that were about the St Kilda uh, St Kilda case in two thousand and four, which was um, Stephen Milne and Lee Montagna, and she was talking about how this media representation was uh, blaming the women, and I had this horror moment that I'd seen those articles. I'd read them and I'd dismissed the claims out of hand. And what really sparked it was wanting to understand that as, you know, a proud card-carrying feminist, how I could be persuaded to write off these women's words as false um, on the basis of the stories that were told. And so that was the, that was the project that I decided to do for my PhD. Was, it was motivated by wanting to understand how language works to persuade people. Mm-hmm. And you developed this concept that I think you call narrative immunity. Yeah. Can you tell us what that means in the context of footy and what what's what it's about? Sure. Well, what I was looking at in in the book was or my first book was the way that 
stories are told about sexual assault and football and the, the stories that were told were not actually about sexual violence at all. They were about relationships between women and men and there were ways of explaining why women would make up stories of sexual assault. Um, so there were things like the, the gold digger who has sex with a footballer and then makes a false complaint to get money and the woman scorned who has sex with a footballer and then she wakes up the next day and he doesn't want a relationship and so she makes a rape complaint out of revenge. So these were the stories that were being told about the the most famous sexual assault cases around between 2004 and 2009. They, people weren't talking about sexual assault, they were talking about these other stories. And so... Part of your kind of work, I think, theorises this idea that these sort of tropes or stereotypes or ways of framing women's behaviour act as, as a kind of shield for, for, for men in sport, high-profile men. They, they help to um, make them kind of immune from um, the kind of allegations that might otherwise attach to them or to ordinary people walking down the street who might be accused of sexual violence. Absolutely. It's because I mean, the, the way that the stories that we tell about sexual assault shape the way that we view it and the way that we respond to it. And so if these kinds of stories have currency and people readily believe them, then they're more likely to think, well, okay, so th- this must be false or it might be false. And part of what part of what's significant with footballers is that you've got a lot of fans and it's very difficult as a fan to say, you know, that, that guy that I cheer for every week or, you know, I see his mugshot on the, um, you know, his football mugshot on the front page or the back page of the paper, um, it's very difficult to think that he could have done something bad. And so it's much easier to latch on to these kinds of narratives and because, you know, this is an unnamed, unknown, faceless woman. We don't know her, but we do know, we think we know mm, mm, um, it, the footballer. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting too because listening to you I'm thinking about how, you know, on the one hand the women who make those allegations are often anonymous. Yes. Um, but they're also familiar because they become f- familiar to us through these stereotypes or through these media framings or narrative framings of the gold digger, digger or the groupie or the woman seeking fame. We, we talk a lot on this program about the importance of language and that's what I yeah. like about your work, Deb, that it really looks... Um, carefully at language and how important it is and what it does, what language produces or um, actually forecloses in in terms of our thinking. And I know that you've taken that PhD research and you've continued on with it and that you're now working on another book that's in this space. Um, So I think you're looking at the process of court reporting now on criminal sexual assault trials of footballers. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and what you've been doing? Sure. So I was wanting to look at it from different perspective. So I'd just been looking at the media texts and it's it didn't it wasn't really explaining how these kinds of narratives get produced. So I wanted to look at uh, the transcripts of the trials themselves and the media reporting of course and also talking to the people who are making those narratives. So interviewing journos and editors and news producers to try to find out more about that process. You know, how do we actually get these kinds of court reports? And so what I've been finding <clears throat> is that part of the problems are in are happening in the courtroom. So some are often the, it's the defence narratives that are really problematic and victim-blaming because there's, there aren't really restrictions on the, the, on the stories that they can tell. Mm. They can tell victim-blaming stories. They can, they can tap into these popular narratives um, in order to convince a jury because they, they don't have to convince them that this is the truth. They just have to convince them that, there's reasonable doubt that it could be this could be the case, and 
looking at the media reports and all, but talking to the journalists was um, very enlightening um, because the people I was talking to very good understandings of sexual violence, um, the problems of the victims facing the courts, um, and some had really strong understanding of the power of representation. I had the most amazing interview with a journo um, who, when I asked her what's difficult about court reporting, and she started talking about uh, an example where she had agonised about how to include a detail because she didn't want to be blaming the victim, and this was important to to understand the case, but and she talked about using about word choice and uh, positioning in the sentence, like sentence structure, and also the structure of the court report in order to bring in this detail that was that was important. Um, and so, of course, the people who are wanting to talk to an academic about sexual assault in the media are more likely to be the ones who are already interested in this as an issue. Um, and so, when I was looking at the problematic media reports. I mean, I wasn't talking to those journalists. Mm. Um, but also there are, there are questions of language that people aren't necessarily aware of because you, when, you're writing, when you're writing anything, you tend to take turns of phrase and expressions. And one of the things with court reporting, because the complainants have to be anonymous, they're finding different ways of saying this. So, you know, she's a woman. She's a woman who, who claims sexual assault. So they t- tend to take these stock phrases or the accuser mm-hmm. is not another really problematic term that gets used. Um, and so when you, when you call someone an accuser, you're actually making the alleged perpetrator into a potential victim mm-hmm. because she's attacking him. Mm. It's interesting how difficult it is to to break the habits of thought and to talk outside of metaphors or to- talk yeah. outside of um, standard kind sort of discursive forms, which we all fall into all of the time. And even myself, I find myself doing it, even though I I try to be really con- conscious of mm. language. Um, given the power and the persistence of these kind of narratives or turns of phrase that you're talking mm. about that have a real force, um, I wonder. Um, how you think about the potential for those things to be disrupted or whether they are being disrupted and whether there is any way that things can or are changing. I'm thinking a lot about the Me Too movement and Time's Up movement that we've seen spreading across the world in recent months. Do Do you think that those movements are having an impact and do you imagine or envisage that they will have an impact on sport and here in Australia particularly? I think they are they are shifting conversations and they they are encouraging or they are encouraging to people people to think that no this isn't an isolated incident that might happen to someone over there this is something that could happen to and has happened to people I know and you've seen on social media people particularly men saying you know I'm I'm shocked that so many of my friends have have come out and said me too because they just they it hadn't occurred to them that it was such a common thing and and I think some some of the important so that's getting the conversation and getting the awareness that there are problems, um, which means that people are likely to be more receptive to potential changes. And I think and one of the court reporters I, I spoke to, I, I asked, you know, what do you think? Um, what do you think I could do in in order to uh, to change journalists or to to help journalists out? And she said that. Court reporters tend to be a very and a very compassionate group, and so she thought that they would be quite receptive to if you know if you were pointing out things that were problematic, that they would be receptive to change, and 
So I think one of the things I found too is that sexual assault, the court reporters and the journos, they don't have, they don't get training in how to cover sexual assault. It's amazing. Yeah. And one of the, the best or the really the only book on court reporting in Australia barely mentioned sexual assault at all. It, it's you know just in terms of the the legalities of you won't be able to report the mm-hmm. complainant's name and suppression orders and things like that. Uh, so I think that's a really important intervention that we could make is into journalism education to bring in um, specifically how, ca- problems with covering sexual assault, but also with language and covering sexual assault because that's something that often doesn't come into it either. Yes. It's amazing to think that that work isn't um, sort of part and parcel of that training isn't part and parcel of of reporting on these really sensitive issues. I know that a lot of our listeners um, and a lot of people I know, including Mm. I myself, read Anna Crean's book, Night Games, which was about um, sexual assault allegations and uh, in football and kind of football culture more broadly, and that a lot of people were very troubled by reading that book and that their relationship with football was affected. Um, Can you tell us how has your relationship with football been affected by doing this work? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, I was a big fan of AFL men's. Um, and when I started my PhD, my interest waned. I was like, I was a diehard, you know, every week my mood was just determined by football mm-hmm. on the weekend, determined by how well Hawthorne played. And my mum actually started watching the end of the games just to see what she was in for when my brother and I got home, <laughs> um, whether she needed to go and hide. <laughs> And so I still I was still going to the games, but there was there was more of a tension because I was seeing how how the structures around football had m- mobilised to dismiss and to to dismiss the women's claims. And it wasn't until two thousand and eight, which was so ironic, um, the premiership year was during the winter, and I'd been aware that there was a case involving Hawthorne footballers, but I'd just been ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was at my computer one day, and I said, and I said, "Okay, so I need to actually read these read these reports about this case." It was from 1999, I think it was in Hawaii, involved a Californian woman. And as I was reading these reports, I was I was gutted. I was just horrified. And it, there's there's not there were, I couldn't see that there was any possible reason why you would make up. Something she didn't press charges. She went to police because she wanted to. Um, she wanted it to be on record, and it wasn't a conscious decision. I was wearing my Hawthorne membership scarf, and I felt dirty. I took it off, and I hadn't. Pu- I didn't put it on ever again. It was like it was like finding out that your best friend's an axe murderer. It was. I had so much investment in the club, and. It wasn't just the just the allegation itself. It was the the way that the Hawthorne had come out and dismissed it in the same way that all the other cases. And I couldn't follow football anymore. My heart was broken. I couldn't even tell anyone about it because I didn't think that anyone would understand. Mm-hmm. It was only you know a week or two later I told my mum, and she got it. She knew because she knew how much football had meant to me, and you know I cried a lot about yes. this. It was like a, it was like a bad relationship breakup. I read a piece that you wrote, I think, for the Footy Almanac a few yeah. weeks ago, though, about your return to the game and how you've fallen back in love with footy. What's done it for you? It's AFLW. Yeah. Um. I I I watched the. I mean, I heard it was coming in two, in twenty sixteen, and I watched the exhibition game. I think it was in September, the Bulldogs in Melbourne. 
and I cried again during that one. <laughs> but for, for happy reasons. For happy reasons. <laughs> it was the first time that I'd been able to enjoy a game of football without having anything in the back of my mind thinking that I was somehow participating in something that wasn't that wasn't aligning with my feminist values. Um, and, yeah, it was it was this really pure enjoyment of football. Um, and as I said, I think I wrote in the piece, I can't remember any particular detail of that game. I can't remember what happened. I don't think I, I don't remember who won. <laughs> but it was just that enjoying the sport itself. And over the last two years with AFLW, I've become a diehard GWS fan. <laughs> you know, I'm friends with Jacinda Barclay on Facebook and super proud of that. <laughs> and you tweet all the time about footy now. I do. Too, don't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We um, see you. Sorry, go on. I dread about women's sport in general, but um, but footy is where the heart is. I can like I love the Matildas, but if they don't win, it's not going to affect my mood particularly. Yes. Whereas you know, with GWS, that's where my heart is now. Yes, <laughs> and if when they win, that's the euphoria, and when they lose, it's the that that's the devastation. So thanks again to Deb Waterhouse-Watson for speaking to us. If you don't follow Women in Sport on Twitter, get behind it. It's a great account. One thing um, that did happen to us when we were at the game last week is there were some really vocal supporters behind us and they were cheering their team, but it was confronting. Like it was, there was at no point did they really cross the line, though I felt like you were maybe gearing up, squaring up for a fight. They did cross a line at one point. At one point they crossed a line. But it can be challenging watching football with really passionate, noisy fans. Yeah, I know, because as a group, when we went to the footy, I mean, we our inner animal comes out a little bit and we can all have a little bit of a different personality. But one thing we're not doing is uh, shouting abuse at people. We've just got our own little quirks with Lucy talking into a scarf. <laughs> and I love uh, Kate sort of, uh, she, she analyses it. And then there's Nicole going, come on! Um, There's different ways we express ourselves. But one thing I want to say to people, to listeners out there, is that I really hear you and I really understand you when you have either a partner or friends that you go to the football with who shout and are terrifying. And I don't mean that this person in your life would ever be violent, would ever hurt a fly, are are shouting abuse in a way that's racially or sexually abusive or anything like that. I mean, they just turn into another person in a way and they can break things. They can shout and the kids have to leave the room. They can be quite horrible. I can understand this being on the verge of perhaps they drink at the wrong moment or they cross a line or these people can just terrify their friends so their friends have to sit a little distance from them. These are people that in every other situation you would never hear this kind of language but having been near that in some ways I find it quite – I'm not a confrontational person and it really, really, really makes me panic Mm. and I feel quite stressed and I've never ever understood really what the word triggered means. I understand it of course intellectually but emotionally I've never really understood it but – I am frightened sometimes sitting near these people at the football and certainly amongst people I know, that's what I'll say, um, where you that kind of 
bad language, bad attitude mm. and really just cross behaviour. I'm just saying to, I hear you to people mm. out there who might be listening to this and feel very uncomfortable because it's usually a loved one who would never act that way in another mm. situation. And I'm just t- I, I heard it at the football the other day. I've heard it many, many times where you just think, dude, and dude being girl or guy, mm. Come on, lift mm. it up. There are people around you and you can let go without just absolutely crossing a line. Hello to Felicity as well. She's listening. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Do Felicity's you know a great Felicity's fan. Felicity's a really silent fan. and But I, I hear you on that loud and clear, Alicia, and it can be revealing. And I've often left moments thinking, do I really know this person? If that's what can be revealed, you know, things like calling the umpires cheats, just even that at that level, I find that offensive and um, really confronting to try and unpack what's this person really about if they can be this scary when they're Mm. watching a game that they love. And people who are negative about their teams, I find that I really struggle with that too. People who really pile on and yell at their teams in a really derogatory and negative way, I don't see what the fun is in that. But I've never understood no. that. It's now a good time to talk about the CEO of Basketball Victoria. Mm, probably. Who um, had an altercation at his daughter's junior basketball game and um, had a spoke to the umpire inappropriately and, and touched an umpire um, during that altercation and is now banned for eight weeks. I think it's just a really, really good reminder that especially if you're at grassroots sporting events to keep your manners in. Yeah. And, and oh, it's just so important. I think what you're talking about, Alicia, um, sadly you often see it um, junior sporting events Absolutely. as well. And it's really important to, to think about what you're doing and how that impacts on the people around you. One positive thing to leave the show with today is that we have enjoyed over the last couple of um, weeks footies been back at a local level and we have been getting so many beautiful messages from women and girls who've started playing and I don't know why but a lot of them have been attributing um, their desire and re-engagement with footy um, in some part to us and they've thanked us um, for being Mm. part of their footy journey and it's been a really emotional and beautiful thing to share with you. So to the women who, especially those north of the age 30 who've been putting their (laughs) boots on and getting out there and feeling liberated and having their turn at playing this game who've got in contact we are so proud of you and we wish we could come around watch you all play but we're with you every step of the way and have fun out there just get out there and enjoy the sisterhood of football because it's strong and we're going to be okay let's stick fat people have a great um, weekend enjoy the footy and Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.